As we continue in our worship service today, I wanted to take uh, just time to read you a letter. Um, I think if I try to say this, uh, the guy who doesn't like to cry will start to cry. And Elisa told me, don't do that. So, in case you have not heard, last Sunday afternoon, I met with the local board of administration to share after much prayer and reflection that I felt God's closing the door of my continued leadership here at Brown's Chapel as lead pastor. For those of you who have reached out this week, I greatly appreciate it. I appreciate your prayers and encouragement. But please know this decision was not made lightly. Personally, I have continued to felt God stirring in my heart about discipleship and spiritual formation ministries. This decision is truly a step of faith. And just as many um, of you may be concerned about what's next, Alicia and I are wrestling with that same question. I know, though, that God is faithful and we can trust him. In the midst of transitions and unknowns, it can be difficult to wait to see its completion. At this moment, we don't even fully know what God's plan is for our family. We currently plan to stay in Greenfield, as we have come to call Greenfield our home. I will, with some excitement here, I get to share this part. I will be starting my doctorate of ministry and spiritual formation beginning this fall at Wesley Seminary. It is also at this time that I uh, share that our youth director, Pastor Tucker, has felt led to change, um, a change at this time for his own life. Tucker has served faithfully for years with the youth here at Brown's Chapel and believe it's time for another voice to speak into their lives. Our last day is scheduled for Monday, May 30th, which is the end of this district's conference year. It has been a true blessing and honor to serve this congregation. We will treasure each and every memory and continue to pray for the health and well-being of Brown's Chapel during this time of transition. God already knows what's next for Brown's Chapel. It is not for a time for us to just wait and see. It's a time for all of us to take action. First, to pray. Pray for the local board of administration. Pray for the search committee. Pray for the future pastor and family. Pray for the people of this congregation. Pray about how you will serve within the church. God has been, If God has been stirring in your hearts, if so, there's no better time than now to get involved in helping to make a smooth transition. As members of the body of Christ, each one of you are important to fulfilling God's dream for Brown's Chapel. Tucker, Alicia, and I are committed to continuing to give it our all over the next few weeks. We do not plan on slowing down. We hope you will do the same as we continue to live out the mission of Brown's Chapel to connect, to grow, to serve. Thank you for welcoming us into your family. And thank you for your prayers and support. I want to give you a, a quick update on where we are as a board and uh, just kind of where we are as a church. Last Sunday, uh, Josh notified us of, of his intent, and uh, we were kind of surprised that Tucker had been wrestling with the same thing over a number of months and uh, gave us the same notice. So we obviously are scrambling a little bit. The board met on Wednesday evening. Um, we are working to put together a search committee. Uh, 
But coming out of that meeting, the focus we felt like needed to be prayer. And uh, we felt like today we need to spend time praying for Josh and Alicia and Josiah and Tucker and their futures as well as the future of our church. Um, so Julie sent out a, an email this week uh, talking about a sign-up sheet that will be on the Welcome Center. We ask each one of you, if you can, to pick a time during the week that you'll commit to praying for this process. First of all, praying for Josh and Alicia and Josiah and Tucker and their decisions. <clears throat> Pray for uh, our search committee and our board as we move forward seeking the Lord's will. And uh, pray for a smooth transition. <clears throat> this, uh, as you remember, has been uh, kind of a tough process. So we'll head into it again, just seeking the Lord's will and his guidance. So <clears throat> what I'd like to do this morning is uh, have Josh and Alicia and Tucker come forward. Our boards are going to gather around. <clears throat> and then I would ask you, as a congregation, to gather around. And Karen Rash is going to lead us in prayer this morning uh, for our group. So if you would do that uh, at this time. I just want to start out by reading Psalm 107, 1-3, and then follow up with prayer. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Dear Heavenly Father, we come today with honor to praise you and, and love you in your house. It is such a blessing for us to have this opportunity to worship with you. Many of us have felt like we've been led into a desert this week with a lot of changes, with a lot of uncertainty, confusion, a possibility of anger, just not understanding where uh, our church and our pastor's lives and Tucker's life will be heading. But we also know that you have a plan for all of us. Your love and your steadfast love for us will lead us out of this wandering, angry place that we may feel like we are in, and we will lead us out of the desert into a promised land of new direction for each one of us, new hope and new love that you have placed on our hearts. We ask that you raise up Josh and Alicia and Josiah into your loving arms. Just protect them and let them know that we have truly been blessed to have them here at Rounds Chapel. Let them know that we love them. We are behind them 100%. Uh, they will be truly missed, but we are also very excited for them, the new possibilities and the new plan that you have laid out for their lives, and hopefully that we can rejoice in that and be in touch with them and continue to love and support them. We ask that you bring uh, your love and support to Tucker. He's been a wonderful addition to our church, both as a, a young teen and then as an adult, to help other teens find their way to your heart. And as a personal note for Jim and I, Tucker has been a very strong part of our son's life, Danny, to find you, to find your love, and to uh, have a calling to go to attend Indiana Wesson. And we thank Tucker for that so much. We ask for your support for the, the board and the search committee. It's never an easy task to search for a new pastor for the church. We've been through it not that many years ago, um, but we have to realize that it's not the board's decision is your decision, Lord. The pastor that comes to our church is for you, not for us. We all need to be behind the, the board 
their search committee and every member of our church to open our hearts and our minds and let your love and your direction and guidance pour into us as we as a church come together and support your direction and the path that you see us leading. Please let us continue our mission statement of connect, grow, and serve, not only within each other, within our, our church family, our community, our state, and our country. Just know that you, we love you, Lord, and let us know what we can do to encourage others to love you and to see your vision for our church. We ask all of this in your wonderful name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we continue this morning, I would invite you to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, John Hunt and I were talking about different books and ones that he uh, would love to see us study over time. And we kept going back to the book of Ruth, and I like the book of Ruth, um, but for some reason I kept getting pulled back into Colossians. Um, and I don't know why. But I have a hunch that God's got some kind of plan. And so as we dive into this over the next uh, few weeks, um, it's also the start of Lent. And so I'd invite you during the season of Lent that you would just open yourselves up. Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, and it's a special time in the church history. And it's a time where we come to God to really reflect on Him. A time where we look towards his heart and his mind and soul and strength that he's wanting to pour into us. And possibly Lent is a time that many Christians observe of giving something up so that they can spend that time focusing on God. And so I would challenge you to look at the different spiritual disciplines. And if you have questions, um, John Chris has created a list. Um, of different disciplines that we can share with you that you can uh, venture through the season of Lent. One of those is fasting, and many Christians around the world will take a meal off during this time, during the week, and just spend it reading the Word of God. I think the focus of uh, fasting is trying to remove those things that consume our lives and take our attention off God, off His Word, away from prayer time. And so I'd invite you in this season, maybe you do a couple of them. Maybe it's you fast one meal a week, and during that time you use the discipline of Bible study and really look at God's Word uh, during that half an hour lunch break you might have. Whatever that looks like. And we'll partner with you. And maybe you find yourselves in the book of Colossians during this time. It's a book that is so full of great things. And the overarching theme that I see through the book of Colossians is the sole sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Paul is getting at this idea throughout the entire book, the trajectory, that Jesus Christ will supply every need. That Jesus Christ will be there in the midst of all that's going on. And if we look at some of those questions real quick, the author is Paul. 
And we're going to dive into the first 14 verses, but here's just a synopsis of the who, when, where. Paul is speaking here. And it's interesting because we see the recipients are the church of Colossae. Guess what? He never visited them. He was hearing these stories. He was getting the accounts of this people, this group of Christians who came together in a city that he never got to go to. And how their love for each other was growing and their devotion to the Word of God. The day in which most likely it was written was around A.D. 60. This is also the time when Ephesians was being written. Most likely, it's because he was in prison during this time. And so it's one of those prison epistles that we come to know as Ephesians and Philippians, Colossians and Philemon, sitting in a Roman cell. And so you have to understand this. This is not Paul just sitting at his desk like somebody at our headquarters might be, writing to a church in another part of the country. This is Paul sitting in prison, sitting in chains. And he is getting excited about the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of God in another city, in another church. And he's kind of like a grandfather in some ways. And he's getting excited, but at the same time, he wants to share what God's laying on his heart. And so we find ourselves in the first 14 verses. <coughs> Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. We obviously, Timothy is around. He's right there. To God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and the love that springs from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you in the same way. The gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear faith fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His gracious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father 
who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Will you pray with me? Father God, your word that we read and we hear, we ask that you would speak into our hearts and minds. That it wouldn't just be on a page. That we sit back on a shelf. That it wouldn't be just in a bulletin or on a screen. But that we would dwell in it. And so, Father God, we ask, we simply and profoundly, all at the same time, Asked to encounter you in your words. In your name we pray. Amen. The first cry that I hear from Paul here is that Christians should be convinced. They should be convicted. They should be overdwelled. Overcome with the of the truth. One of the questions that young adults around the world right now are asking, and it has even crept into the church, is, is there absolute truth? It's something that many of you who teach school, many of you who interact with people in the community are wrestling with. Not from your standpoint, but from theirs. They don't understand that there is absolute, absolute truth. Many people think that, well, if it's true for you, that's good. It's not true for me. Or that there's a smorgasbord of truth and I can come to it and I can pick what I want. We even find this in Christianity when you start to talk to some people. They're like, well, I know that's my way to get to God. But there might be another way to get to God. And what I want you to hear is Paul right from the get-go is starting to talk to the church. The Colossae church, that there is truth. And the truth that they have heard is the absolute soul truth. The Word of God is truth in their life. And no matter the world coming around them and disagreeing with it, does not change the truth. Verse 5. The word of truth, the gospel. So when we refer to the gospel, we're referring to the truth that God has spoken into existence. God's grace in all its truth. As we proclaim, as we live out the grace that God has placed in our hearts, placed in our lives, we're living out His truth. It makes me think of the expression that's around the truth, around the church, the gospel truth. I think Paul is here referring to that and it's also captured in John chapter 8 verse 31 and 32. Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples when you, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. 
this truth, holding on to it. We must know the truth before we can recognize what is false. During this Lenten season, I would ask you to continue to go back to the Word of God to examine what is truth so that as the world comes around us, as we interact with people, we can know what is true. Those who are able to detect counterfeit bills learn everything that they can about the genuine bill. I was watching this documentary online and they were examining the new bills as they're printed. And everybody had to look at every angle and know how the ink interacts with the paper. And then you do that swiping marker thing and you put it under a light to know what is a true bill. And I think the Holy Spirit has been talking to Christians over the years to hold up the Word of God. To hold up what is being taught, what is being proclaimed. to grab on to that spiritual marker and swipe it across to what's being taught. How are you at telling what is genuine truth from the Word of God? There's a lot of great sayings out there that get told over and over. But are they sayings from the Word of God or just from our culture? I believe it's Paul's desire and prayer that the church would know the truth when facing falsehood. Verse 9 and 10 talk about this, that they needed to be filled so that they would have the knowledge of His will and to grow in that knowledge of God. And I believe as we live out the truth, Letter B, or I forget if I put a point, we must exercise love and humility in proclaiming that truth. As we live it out, it's not this bludgeoned instrument that we hit people. When I was in Ramsar, uh, I met with the principal of our high school. And we were talking about me coming in and uh, the teachers uh, of our local school they always had to take a, I guess, a lunch duty from time to time where they were in there every Monday or every Tuesday, every Wednesday. And so they started asking, well, can some people come in and help us? And she called me into her office and she said, Josh, um, if you're okay with this, we can't pay you any money to come sit with the teenagers, but we would love for you to come on a Wednesday and sit through all four periods of lunch. And, you know, break up any fights that may happen. Have conversation with teens. Care about them. Love on them without loving on them because we can't break that rule. And then she's like, and you can't bring your Bible and hit them over the head with it. I think the world has got this idea that some Christians hit the Word of God over people's heads. And I think Paul is reminding us as we exercise 
And the word of God continues through the book of Colossians. That the word of God that is truth, the gospel truth, is exercised through love and humility. That as we proclaim God's word, we proclaim his love through our actions and lives. We go on that we must live out Christian principles if we want people to listen to the truth. As they see us living out those principles, they see an unwavering truth. Something that is constant. And it points back to a God, a Father who is in heaven that is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. A truth that does not change over time. And even though people are questioning if there is absolute truth, when they're in their dark moments, they want to know something is stable, something is solid, and something that will never change. Number two, this is looking at verses four and five. Christians should be filled with hope. We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that springs from the hope that is stored up in heaven. The Greek word translated stored up carries this meaning to be reserved, to be set aside for someone. The tense is a verb, it's indicative. And that hope that once was will always be and it's being encapsulated. It's being encapsulated in a truth that can never be taken away from us. The hope is a gift from God. The hope is reserved for you as a child of the Most High King. And nothing this world can do, nothing that Satan does against us, can take away the hope that is stored up because it points us to a reality in heaven, not a reality on this earth. It points us to a reality where God Himself is seated on the throne and His power is flowing through that to each of us to give us hope. A and B, I didn't put any fill-in-the-blanks for you there. I just wanted to give them to you. We should live as if life is not all there is. So many times people are living for the now, the here. They're trying to fulfill everything in this moment. But our reality is not just here. I believe that God wants us to have life to the fullest in abundance here, but it's a life that points, a life that beckons, a life that calls us to see our reality is in heaven. That is where our hope that is where our salvation is. We should think of our amazing future when life doesn't go exactly as planned. Because our future is encapsulated with Jesus Christ. It's encapsulated 
in the future that God has planned for each of us. He is the one who already knows our steps. He is the one who has already spoken the future into existence. This is one of those things that boggles my mind. Yet I'm so excited about it, but I don't understand it. God's already there in the future. God's already there at the tail end of all things. He's already at the end of the transition that's coming up for our church. He's already at the end of seeing Josiah graduate from high school and go to college. Or when your child or grandchild He's already at the end and He is already celebrating it and rejoicing in it. And I think there's time when God looks back and He's like, I know you can't see this, but just trust me to celebrate. Frankly, it's hard. And yet it's so exciting at the same time that He is a God outside of time. And He knows exactly what your future holds. And it's amazing in Him. The third thing that I see that Paul is teaching from this passage is Christians should value prayer. We've been living that out this morning. Do you really value prayer? And I know we've talked about this. We had a sermon series on prayer. But I come back to this question to simply ask, how much time do you spend in prayer? There's four things that I see about prayer in this passage that Paul is teaching to the church right from this intro. We should pray regularly. Verse 9, since that day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. When people come to talk to me when they're in the midst of a crisis, I often ask them, how's your prayer life? They'll go, well, you know, when things happen, we pray. When that emergency, when I lose those keys, or all of a sudden I realize that we're moving towards separation, or we can't get along, and Every single night we're arguing. That's when they turn to prayer as this emergency hotline that they call God for. And I'm not saying don't stop praying in those emergencies, but I'm saying add a regular time of prayer. Prayer, we see here in verse 3, we should pray with praise and thanksgiving. We always thank God for the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. And other passages of Paul fill us in on the greater idea of praise and thanksgiving. That they're interwoven. That as we thank God before anything else, before we ask Him, and that's why I think it's right there at the beginning in verse 3, is that prayer is being thankful for what God has done because it calls us to remember what He is doing today and what He has done in the past. And then it shoves us into the future to see that He will still be faithful. 
He will still be there in the midst of the change. He'll be there in the midst of what's going on. And then literally see, we pray for others. Paul is praying for a people that he has never visited. A people that he hasn't got to interact with, but he has heard their story and his heart was moved. And so he is praying for others. And as we pray for others, we should also pray for spiritual development, spiritual growth. Not just for ourselves, but those around us. Lots of times in our list of prayers, we always write down the things that are most concerning us, don't we? How high is spiritual development for your family, for your friends, for your neighbors on that list? Nine and ten, verses nine and ten point us towards this reality. That Paul is praying for the knowledge, the spiritual wisdom to grapple, to not just grow. I think this idea is to consume the Colossians. That they would seek this wisdom and it would become the greatest need in their lives. Because as we grow spiritually, when those false truths come against us, those false truths are spoken, we'll easily recognize them and be able to speak against them. And as our Christianity, as our walk grows, Christians should live a life worthy of the Lord. First and foremost, we should do good works. It should be an outcry of who we are as Christians. It should be the fruit that is produced in our lives. As we go about serving, as we go about living our lives in such a way, good works are produced. And Paul swings us back into this statement that's going to be woven not just through these first 14 verses, but woven throughout the whole book. Is that we should have a growing knowledge of God. So even as we serve, as we do good works, as fruit is being produced, God wants to grow His understanding of who He is in each of us. We never end in growing. We never end. We never come to this finish line of knowing who He is because He is such a big God. I've shared with you in the past, God is not the little God that gets stuck in a box like my youth pastor had growing up that you pressed and it would shake on his desk and it would say, let me out of here, let me out of here. That is not the God we serve. He is not in a little box stuck on a shelf in our lives. The God we serve, the God, the knowledge that we have of Him is ever expanding as we walk with Him. It's ever growing. It should move us. 
Our knowledge should move us beyond the basics. Our knowledge should result in more than just knowing good from evil, but is doing the good. Paul has this whole idea of young Christians growing up in the faith. And we'll get into it more as this book unfolds. But as our knowledge grows of who He is, our love for Him will grow. Our desire to be with Him will grow. And it will forever shape us. And it will shake us to our core. See, a life that is worthy of the Lord is a life that we seek His strength to do God's will. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might that we might have the endurance and the patience. You know I hate that word patience. And I guess Josiah is picking that up from me because he does not like patience. He does not like to be told he has to wait for that piece of candy until he earns it. And unfortunately, Grandma and Grandpa... Uh, tend to give him candy a lot quicker than mom and dad. And so he has learned he doesn't have to have patience from time. But when he's at our house, he is learning patience. The strength that we need to seek produces endurance and produces patience in our lives. We need the power of the Heavenly Father, of the Holy Spirit, of Jesus Christ to move beyond our human resources of having patience, endurance. Because when we rely on our human selves, we collapse under the weight. We stop moving forward when we get crushed by all the stuff around us. And as we live a life that is powered by the Holy Spirit, we should joyfully give thanks to God. Verse 12, joyfully give thanks to the Father. He's calling us here right at the end of this passage to give thanks to the Father. Paul hasn't tore them apart yet. He hasn't told them what's wrong. But he's saying as good Christians, we would come to a life that is full of joy in giving thanks to God. And as I look at these words in the Greek, I see joyful is separate from just this happiness. It actually points us back to the Old Testament, to Nehemiah chapter 8. And for the men who've been coming to the study, you'll recognize this statement. Chapter 8, verse 10. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy is not superficial happiness. It's not dependent on the circumstances and people around us. Joy is an attitude based on the knowledge of what God has done for us 
and what he will continue to do for us in the future. And I think Paul is tapping into that understanding that as us, as Christians living out our lives, we should live it out with joyful thanks to God the Father. As we come to the close, I'd ask you, how are you living out your Christian walk? Is it worthy of the Lord? Is it producing fruit? Is it growing in the knowledge of who He is? Are you seeking the strength that He gives? And are you living it out with joyful thanks? As we close in this song, reflect on those four elements. Where are you at? Do you need to seek God in one of those areas today? He's waiting to meet with you. He's waiting to produce in you good fruit that will bear for years to come. He's waiting to give you the knowledge of who He is. He's waiting to give you the strength. And He's waiting to give you joy that will last and not be wavered by the world. Let's worship.